Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace as we look to your word. We understand that this is a spiritual enterprise and that without the work of the Holy Spirit, this comes to naught. And so we pray for a work of your spirit to apply these things to our hearts and our minds and our souls. I pray for those who are believers that are here, that know you. Lord, I pray that you would grant them a deeper understanding of who you are and how you are to be presented. And I pray, Lord, for those who are unbelievers, that they would find salvation even in this time, fleeing the wrath to come and running into the arms of Christ, their Redeemer. And I praise you and I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when last I spoke to you, we just finished exegeting Acts chapter 13 as far as verse 12. If you recall... This section recounted the events that uh, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark experienced in a town called Paphos with a false prophet who went by the name of Bar-Jesus, and this involved also a Roman proconsul, and his name was Sergius Paulus, and in the end he became our brother in Christ in spite of obvious satanic opposition. From here, Luke is going to lead us into an account of the greatest sermon from the greatest preacher in the book of Acts. And this is, of course, Saul, who has now become fully Paul. And what we're going to begin to study today is also his longest sermon as well that is recorded in this book. And its content and Paul's philosophy of preaching are incredibly relevant and instructive to us in our context. And so much so that we're going to take due time to analyze these things. So today we're going to do a little more than graze the surface of this in terms of content. Instead, we will focus most of our time on Paul's prioritization of preaching as well as his general approach to it. So we will turn now to the text. We're going to read from verse 13 as far as verse 41 of chapter 13. This includes the entirety of a sermon. Then I'm going to give you points of combined exegesis and application. And as we do this, we will also address the historical and geographical context as well. So read now with me, starting in Acts 13 and verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Now note here just briefly that this is not the Antioch that we encountered previously in which the great revival took place. That is Antioch in Syria. 
So there are multiple Clevelands in various different states. I think there's one in Kansas, if I recall correctly. Same deal here with the name of this particular place. But going on, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it for a period of about 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. I believe I did not exaggerate about the greatness of this address. But as I said, straight away into points. Point number one. Biblical preaching is the greatest ecclesiastical and more broadly speaking ministerial priority of Christ's church and the evangelism that spawns local churches. Uh, As we have progressed through this book, we've gone from Peter and John to Stephen and now to Paul and Barnabas. But the purpose of all of their endeavors and their travels And the reason that they persevered through so many trials was to preach. 
and to demonstrate their priority upon preaching in this specific instance, consider that this particular path to preaching Christ from Paphos in Cyprus to Perga, Pamphylia, to Pisidia, and Antioch was especially arduous, and it was so for many reasons. To start, they have sailed 200 miles across the Mediterranean to arrive at the Pergan port of Italia, and this is a hand-hewn boat, you know, from the first century. So sailing in general was no picnic, according to my math, which is not reliable because I cannot do math. Well, they were in this boat, probably the bottom of it, for uh, in excess of a month. And I did that based upon actually uh, the speed that modern sailboats achieve, which I guess is about five miles an hour. I wouldn't assume that they were as efficient, so it was probably even longer. So they took this great journey across the sea, and then once they arrived at the port, they ascended to an elevation of 3,600 feet above sea level via a 100-mile hike. They have traversed here what is called the Taurus Mountains, which were known for being exceedingly difficult to climb and travel through. They were prone to life-threatening floods on the banks of two major rivers in that region, and given the topography, this makes sense. I saw, a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bear Grylls, saw him do like a mock representation of what happens when you camp in the wrong place that ends up being subject to flood, and they, they took this big tank up there on the back of a truck, and they emptied it out, and you know, it was, a, it was dramatized, but the point is real, which is that uh, you will die a terrible death and being swept away. That's the kind of situation that they are in, the kind of topography that they are ascending. Well, and by the way, this path, as difficult as it was geographically to traverse, was also home to a band of organized robbers. And these gentlemen, and I don't want to be considered sexist here, so ladies, there could have been lady thieves in there as well, for all I know, uh, had actually outlasted attempts at being excised all the way from Alexander the Great to Augustus Caesar, and they are still here now. Do you remember when Paul wrote the following, 2 Corinthians 11:26? I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. There are eight distinct dangers listed there, and at least four of those are experienced on just this trip alone. And in addition to all of this, as though what we know so far is not enough, there is actually a thought, although somewhat speculative, that he also has malaria or something like it. And this is believed on account of Galatians 4.13. You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you in the first time. And the reason why this is supposed is because this whole region belongs to the kingdom of Galatia. And malaria as is known even to this day, is hindered in terms of its spread, and, and it's also not as virulent, evidently, in higher altitudes. And so they've gone from very low altitudes to very high altitudes. Now, as I was preparing this, and as I was going through this study, it was exactly at this point in my preparation for this sermon. And as I sat in my plush office chair, typing away on my modern laptop, using a website that gives me any passage of Scripture that I want at the very moment that I ask for it in order to deliver a sermon in a temperature-controlled room that I arrived at in a car, having started it with a push start, that I understood for the first time a very practical reason for the apostolic rejection of pragmatism in favor of preaching. 
Uh, for a long time, I've had the, the spiritual rationale down pat. I have lived by the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians to the glory of God and to your great benefit. But starting in verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, or since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews... Ask for a sign in Greek, search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And chapter 2 here, skimming just a section, when I came to you, this is Paul speaking, obviously, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man but on the power of God but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That is why this is structured exactly the way that it's structured. The liturgy, it's why the sermons are delivered in the way that they are. It's why they're put together the way that they are, because this is an entirely and thoroughly supernatural experience. There isn't anything that I can do to aid it. I can't trick you into heaven. I will not employ carnal means. So I understood all of that. But what is now impressed upon me is that although sadly there are a lot of less than brilliant people in the world, I don't think there's anybody dense enough to suffer as they have in order to establish the kinds of ministries that the modern church does. Nobody's traveling 200 miles across sea and then 100 miles up the face of a mountain range, potentially with malaria, to do the things that the modern church does to establish a pancake breakfast once a month on a Saturday that's heavy on gluttony and light on the gospel. To put up some woman in a church to lead a ladies' Bible study that degenerates into nothing more than a gossip session. To establish vacation Bible schools that are 90% entertainment, 5% snack time, and another 5% of a false gospel that leads children into confessions they don't even understand that send them to hell with assurances they shouldn't have. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And for that great end, we will suffer great things. But for the modern church and their busyness without benefit, we won't. And in fact, neither will they, and neither do they. And that's why ease and comfort, again, are so dangerous. And we have spoken mostly about this in terms of you as an individual, but it is true as here corporately. When things are easy, we just act. We just do we get to work, we don't even think about what we're doing or why we're doing it or the potential benefit that it may have or may not have. But when things are hard, we think before we act. And for Christians, that thinking means consulting the Scriptures 
and examining them scrupulously before we act at all. We must therefore think in our comfort, our opulence, our wealth, our temperature-controlled rooms and buildings as those who struggle in ways that we don't. We must put ourselves in their situation. We must, through that mindset, whittle it down to brass tacks, so to speak, because brass tacks, as I am using it here, is the only thing that saves. Everything else is a stupid waste of life. And what exacerbates this problem of pragmatism over preaching even further is that while for at least American preachers so many of the material and natural challenges that they had are absent, or at least diminished, the spiritual challenges and persecution remain. This hasn't changed. It's never been a context, whether it was the liberalism of the early 20th century that was pressing in on the church or the coming very real persecution that's about to be poured out upon the church unless the hand of God comes and stops it. We have always been opposed by the devil. And that opposition is intense. That suffering is great. And so... Because people still don't want Christ, the cross is still foolishness to those who are perishing, there exists every natural incentive toward programs and away from preaching. But because programs still cannot save, I am going to continue to spend my time in that, albeit, cushy office chair. Doing what I do, preparing sermons, because this is what grows Christians. Point number two, biblical preaching is by nature bold doesn't mean that the man needs to be by nature bold, but when he engages in this activity, he must assume this posture. Now, one of the great problems with the modern church is that there are far too many critical questions that are left unanswered because they're never even asked in the first place, and here's another one of these. Does the man in the pulpit truly speak on behalf of the living God, or does he not? Does he speak on behalf of the thrice holy creator of the universe, Or does he not? Because if he doesn't, then he's free to speak as casually as men do in every other social setting. He can be jovial all the time. He can be casual in his approach. He can be unassuming. If the man's not speaking on behalf of Yahweh, then he may speak in the same manner that he speaks to friends at a dinner party. And his hearers should expect nothing more, nor in fact accept anything more. Wouldn't that be absurd? Can you imagine, for example, Paul standing up in a gathering like this and addressing some secular matter with as much force as he addresses this? I am certain that the infrastructure of this city could be improved in the following ways. Thus saith the Lord. Or I am certain that Pisidian Antioch and its football team needs to draft such and such player in order to fill such and such position. Thus saith the Lord. Of course not. Authoritative declarations and dogmatism are largely inappropriate in casual gatherings or concerning truly secular issues. And in fact, to speak boldly, if this were the case, would be both an absurdity and a sin. We find these people obnoxious, and we do so rightly. There are people like this in the world. You don't know. You don't have that level of certainty about a great number of things. That's a lack of humility to hold the opinions of others on matters such as those to be as, or, or to rather to be less valid than your own. On the other hand, though, 
Casual conversation seems inappropriate if a man is truly speaking on behalf of the creator of all things and the savior of mankind. And because Paul is speaking in this capacity, his tone and his tenor are very serious and the structure even of what is, by the way, an extemporaneous address is very deliberate and very well crafted and designed. First note is opening here, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. This amounts to, I have something to say and you need to hear it. And if the preacher cannot in good conscience adjure his listeners to listen to him with this kind of a call to attention, then be sure that whatever comes next is not going to be biblical preaching. It cannot be because biblical preaching is always this. It is not casual. It is not relatable, not at least in the way that the modern church defines relatability. I want this to be relatable in that it teaches you to relate to God through Christ. I don't need you to learn to relate to me. God forbid that you should. Preaching is an invitation into another world, an entirely other existential state. Preachers are standing at the threshold of eternal life, and we are beckoning sinners to enter through it. And that entrance is through Christ. So the nature of the discourse and our demeanor as we give these addresses had better be completely different than anything our hearers are accustomed to commonly in other settings, or else our cavalier manner will belie the gravity of our message. Whimsy is good for TED Talks. It's a liability here. And that's why Paul chooses a sober approach instead. Note that Paul first stands up. I became really cool in the church. And preachers much more cooler, much more cool than I do this for a while. They, they set up a mock living room scene instead of a pulpit because they wanted to sit down. Now, Jesus did sit in the synagogue. He didn't sit when he was addressing throngs and masses outside of the synagogue. But then Jesus and Paul were not doing exactly the same thing, and they were not doing it amongst the same group of people. Jesus sat and expounded particular passages amongst Palestinian Jews, as was their custom. And to sit in the Moses seat was a very serious position to take, and that was understood by all who were present. Paul, though, on the other hand, seems to be standing because he is giving, as it is said in the text, a word of exhortation per the synagogue official's request, actually. And this seems to be the custom of the Jews of the dispersion. But at any rate, Christ sitting to expound was always as serious of a posture as Paul's standing in his context. But in Paul's context, he stands consistently in this book. And so ought we, because our context is the same in this respect. For us, sitting is akin to lounging or passivity, and I am neither lounging nor passive in this time, and you must know it. We too, as the text states of Paul, are exhorting which is defined as emphatically urging your hearers to take a certain course of action. And because the course of action that we are urging is faith and repentance as a means of fleeing the wrath to come, this is clearly not best done by me sitting on a sofa and kicking my feet up with a coffee table in front of me as I am in the front of a church because I want to recreate your living room. The point of that sort of thing and that approach, which goes beyond that particular action in general is to make people feel comfortable. But the point of exhortation is to make people act. Generals don't sit. 
as they call their men to battle. In any other scenario, I suppose, is having had their legs blown off or something, and so they have to sit, or having some other injury. Or in the Christian context, say there's a situation like there was with the Apostle John at the end of his life when he had to be carried in on a cot into the church at Ephesus because he suffered so horribly for the cause of Christ and been boiled but survived. But otherwise, we don't sit when we call people to eternal life in a formal gathering, be it in the local church or in a religious service, as this is in our context, in the context, I should say, of our text. Now, what you say matters most, and we're going to get into what he says and the content of his message, but posture, tone, and demeanor matter too. Are you self-sabotage? And really what you sabotage is your ability to convey the truth of God. Because you're talking about very, very serious things in an unserious way. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense to people. And it shouldn't. I once had the misfortune of sitting in on a sermon where a gentleman preached a, a sermon that I believe the title of, of was actually The Holiness of God. And to my great consternation, he told juvenile jokes all the way through it which were not funny, by the way, and I like funny jokes. Even if they had been funny, I wouldn't have liked them in that context, but as an aside, they were also not funny. So maybe he should have focused on preaching instead of comedy because it really didn't appear to be his bag. But it's a disrespectful action to take, and you should understand that. Silly men behaving in a silly manner cannot credibly exhort and by the way, exhortation is exactly the difference between preaching and teaching. If you have ever wondered what is the technical distinction between the two, it's this. Biblical teaching can include exhortation, and it often does, but it doesn't need to. It can just feed your mind, and there's great benefit to that, but that isn't preaching. Preaching must call you to action, or else it is not preaching. A preacher is to reveal to you that you're standing at a fork in the road, and you've got to choose left, you've got to choose right. But you can't stand still. And thus Paul opens by saying effectively, irrespective who you are or whatever spiritual category you currently occupy, listen to me in earnest because you are all accountable to respond by acting upon this message. And note here that he specifically calls the attention of both Jew and Gentile. And the reference to Jew is obvious by men of Israel, but the reference to the Gentiles is only slightly less so in you who fear God. They are in the court of the Gentiles, which is the place that this would commonly be given, this sort of an address which house Gentile and Jew alike. And he repeats this again later in verse 26 by calling the attention of and specifically addressing the, quote, brethren, meaning according to the flesh here, though not yet as by the Spirit, because they are not converted. And thus also sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. And there are the Gentiles again. And by the way, the preacher here is never to shy away from calling the people in front of him to action. He's never to allow his hearer to easily dismiss God's message as being for somebody else, somewhere else. The exhortation is practical and actual. It is not theoretical. It is not relevant to somebody somewhere. He is to make very clear that he is talking to you and you and you, and you, and you, as individuals. Whatever Paul is in his free time, whatever personality quirks he invariably has, 
because he's human just like the rest of us. He is in this time and in this occupation, God's man preaching God's message, and as such, this has become a sacred exercise. And the same is true with every faithful preacher, and this is to be understood by every faithful congregation, including you all. Now, every man is only ever a man, okay? And he will play many common roles within the lives of his congregants. I am the husband to that young lady over there. I am the father of these children. I am, I hope, the friend of all of you. I am the gym buddy of some of you, which is a really weird transition to try to make. And I try to keep my gym bro jokes in check in that context. But none of these things define me as I stand behind the pulpit. Now, you are to be Bereans, so if you think that this is some kind of a cult-like call to regard me as infallible, it's not. You're accountable to God. We, we Baptists, we're not technically in name. I was just talking to somebody about this. We have this thing called individual soul liberty, which means you stand before the Lord yourself, and you'll give an account. When you get there, you're not going to be able to say, Austin said, yada, 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 so I bank my soul on it. You have a Bible for a reason. But insofar as the preacher is faithful and accurate in his exegesis and application, he is to be regarded by you as a messenger of God, and he is to adjure you as such to listen and to listen well, and you are to oblige. That is your responsibility, not before him, but before God. And let me speak to you as parents now, you who are. You are to teach your children that this is what this is. This is not to be understood by them as the consumption of content as they would ingest some podcast or some little video that they see on the internet. This is totally different. They're being called to action by God's man who is preaching to them the word of the living God. Now, so that you understand the nature of the burden that I'm laying upon you and so you don't add to it unnecessarily, if your children are little and they're here, first off, praise the Lord. And also understand that occupying their little hands as they listen without occupying their minds is actually a very wise tact for most children. So if you bring a coloring book, you're not demeaning what's happening here. If you are the parent of small children, you know that very often when their hands are moving, their minds are free. Okay? Not electronic devices because those engage their minds. Okay? And you want their minds to be free. And I only say that as an aside so that you understand. But for most kids, the preacher is a stodgy, dry, Charlie Brown's teacher type of figure. No matter what you do, until they become converted, even if we are objectively riveting because of the subject matter that we deal with, unregenerate people, big ones, little ones, they just don't care. Okay? They don't like it. But it is your responsibility to actively teach your children of the eternal implications of the task of preaching. And the lack of this is no small contributor to generations of American youth who left gospel preaching churches in order to find excitement in barely churches in the 90s and the 2000s, and now these churches have collapsed because it turns out cool was never actually going to be a sufficient foundation for Christ's church to be built upon, and so they're gone. It won't work. Doesn't matter. So even pragmatically speaking, you may as well not take that course. Point number three, biblical preaching is actually preaching from and about the Bible. 
I know, it's like a lightning bolt that just hit you. Biblical preaching is actually preaching from and about the Bible, which is a profound concept, but only because we are so accustomed in our culture to preacher story time hour. And so we neglect to consider what the men who are doing this obviously think about the people that they're speaking to and what this also says of them. They really believe that their hearers are so dull that they are so unimpressive that they will actually travel 10 minutes to an hour to hear some man exegete the events of his last vacation or some recent family outing. The timing of this point for me really comes at a bad time because I just had a family vacation and now I'm limiting all of my illustrations. The point is true. It's not to say, by the way, that you can't ever use an illustration from your own experience. You can But that's to be a digestive aid, so to speak, Uh, not the meat and potatoes. If that occupies any significant amount of time in your sermon whatsoever, you are exegeting yourself and not Christ. And by the way, the people who think this, the men who think that all these people will come to hear them talk about whatever and expand and expound upon their own mundane experiences, they're right. People will come for that. Evidently, their lives are so vapid that they will engage in that exercise once a week, and it has to be that way because those churches are full of people. If the preacher's good enough, if he's a good enough storyteller, I say preacher, but he's not a preacher. Preacher's air quote. And they, of course, conceive of themselves as being totally worthy of all the people's focus, and so they drone on and on and on about some apparently self-deprecating yet actually falsely humble struggle in their own lives that's designed to endear the people to them by appearing relatable. See, I put my pants on one leg at a time as though you needed to be told that. Maybe they recall a time when they were just too loving or too forgiving or they just felt too deeply or maybe they actually do confess some legitimate sin but not for transparency's sake as is necessary at times but as a display of their own non-existent humility because they are even better at acknowledging their own fault than the plebes that they are speaking to presently. And because idolatrous affections are so easily sold in our day, they shockingly find an audience week in and week out for this nonsense. I will say the most overt examples of this I do not really think are an issue for most of the people that I am speaking to now, but there are subtle examples of this that might get you. I was in a a boring old, plain Bible church, okay? The one that I was raised in. And the preacher came back from a particular vacation and he gave a sermon titled Lessons From and then fill in the blank with the place that he had been at. And brother, was I doing this. And Lydia was sitting next to me and she said, what is wrong? And I said, well, there is a theft afoot. I'm being robbed. See, I came here under the pretense that I was going to hear a word from God. And instead, I'm hearing this fellow bloviate about his experiences on vacation as though I cared. And I don't. Uh, There is a context for that. And it's with your friends and it's with your close family. And pull out your iPhone and show them all the pictures and talk to them about all the things that you did. But that's not the context here. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And it is a violation of the most egregious kind to rob people of the voice of God so that you can speak on your own behalf. 
And if you think that there are not versions of this and men who do this in reform circles, you are wrong. I have used this example in the past, but when I was going into the ministry, there were still aspects, and there always will be, but there were still aspects of, of relatively fundamental issues that I did not fully understand. Now, I hadn't fully settled, okay? And one of them was which tact should I take? Should I take the more John MacArthur tact or should I take the cool guy tact? And I knew and I regarded John MacArthur to be a very, very faithful man. I never doubted that. But he's really, really rigid, right? He seems really rigid to me. He seemed rigid then. And then there were these other cool guys, and they were reformed, and they were sound, at least in their understanding of the gospel. These would be David Platt. They would be Matt Chandler. Uh, What's his face from Mars Hill? Driscoll. Francis Chan. And so I just, I sat back and I watched. And I wanted to see that proverbial uh, observational learning that we spoke about not that long ago. I did that with them. And I genuinely didn't know. Okay, and here's the deal. With some of these guys, objectively, you have to acknowledge that they're excellent communicators. Right? That's a fact. But one by one, I, I watched them blow themselves up and blow their churches up for various different reasons. Uh, social justice, got a lot of them. Communism, Marxism made its way into uh, Christian doctrine dividing people based upon categories that took out a number of them that would be Matt Chandler that would be David Platt I watched Francis Chan and and to my shame he got me he got me I was deceived at first when he left that church of 10,000 people and he said I recognized that these people were doing Christianity wrong and so I just wanted to do it right at first I was like oh isn't he so faithful and then 10 seconds later I was like wait what the what You started the church from nothing. They don't know Christianity, but that you taught them it. What kind of coward does that? Says, I misled all of these people, and they now reflect my misapprehensions of the Christian faith, and instead of doing the right thing by God and going back and fixing it, I'm just going to leave. And then I was back to John MacArthur. Not because he's my pope, but because I recognize that he is a much better example of what that is to be. And, you know, to be fair, if you saw the way that I was dressed as I was giving this address, you'd probably have a problem with that. So, you know, you can't please everybody, I guess. But John MacArthur doesn't think much of himself, and that much is evident, and neither does Paul. And that's why these men minister in the way that they do. Paul, as far as he's concerned, is the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners, and that's why he preaches in the way that he does. He is able to elevate Christ because in his own eyes, in his own mind, in his own heart, he is unworthy. And he is unworthy, as we all are. And do you know what he thinks about his hearers, by the way? Oh, he thinks that they are people made in the image of that same holy God. Alone in God's creation are they eternal. They have souls. And among them, there are elect for whom Christ died. The most worthy currency in all the universe 
has been spent to redeem their souls, and he does not know which of them that will be applied to. That is what he thinks about his hearers, and that's why he's not talking about himself. Now, I previously derided preachers who offer their hearers preacher story time hour. But that's not to say that preachers aren't storytellers. Now, of course, it's true that if you can't shut up about your own story long enough to tell Christ's story, it doesn't really matter how good of a storyteller you are. But I cannot see how you could actually be a competent preacher and not be a good storyteller. After all, how can a man who cannot tell a good story ever tell the greatest story? On this sermon of Paul's, is that greatest story? Consider what is involved here and how much ground he covers and what that ground looks like. First, as a competent and uh, impenitent Calvinist, he starts with that great doctrine of election. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And then from there, he goes to the Exodus. And then from there, the divine judgment of exile in the wilderness and in the promised land and then the appointment of judges on their behalf and to protect them and to guide them and then the institution of a high priest and then David, the uh, great old covenant king and from, then, from there rather he builds a bridge to Christ who is the king of kings and then he goes to the Baptist who was the last and the greatest of the old covenant prophets who foretold of Christ most directly and then he goes back to Christ and salvation and forgiveness of sins and the limitations of the law. And all of this is capped off by a call to action given with a sober warning. And let me remind you of this, verses 40 and 41. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of and the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you. That is a message worth calling everybody's attention to. Or on the other hand, there is always deriving vague moral and spiritual lessons from your own personal life or from the latest blockbuster superhero movie because you care more about putting butts in pews than you do souls in heaven. You can choose either course, but the consequences of the latter are dire when you leave this life. Point number four which will be briefly made. Biblical preachers find common ground with their hearers where they may, and so ought Christians in general. And even as I make this point, as I feel it leaving my lips, I understand that I have created for myself a minefield and I have stepped into it. Because there is a very common form of this that is grossly unbiblical. It is finding common ground where you may not with people. But there is a biblical form of this and Paul has certainly uh, engaged in this way. When he speaks to uh, Gentiles, and we haven't gotten there yet in the book of Acts, but when he speaks to Gentiles and you see those sermons, are they laid out like this? No, they are not. He's doing this because these are Jews, and this is their common history and the way that God has moved through their common people. And so, of course, he would build upon this commonality. And so... In keeping with this, we should utilize what we have in common with various different groups to the extent that we do. And this isn't a compromising of truth, but rather beginning with commonly accepted truths. And so, for example, I've spoken to many Muslims on college campuses and wherever and given them the gospel. I'm happy to acknowledge Abraham as the father of both of our faiths. 
Then I, I raise to them what I perceive to be the biggest issue with their religion. I say to them, Allah, God of Abraham, as you say, God of Isaac and, and Jacob, how holy is Allah? Oh, Allah is entirely holy. Okay, we agree. Yep. Abraham is our father according to the faith. Allah is entirely holy. Are you holy? No, I am not holy. Okay. So then how are you being unholy, going to be reconciled to Allah who is altogether holy? Because if all Allah is altogether holy, then he cannot tolerate one such as you. And then I say, well, you can reconcile this by accepting the covenant that was made to the one you claim to be your father. When the Lord came to him and said, by your seed, I will bless all the nations of the world. Your seed, singular, that is the Lord Jesus, the redeemer of sinners. You, Muslim, you have the same problem I have. You just have no solution. Okay, that's an example. Roman Catholics, we share much in common with Roman Catholics, not the saving bits, which are the most important parts. We have the Trinity, and we have all of that. So, so build off of that and then go directly to grace, which is the issue. Mormons. I have read the Book of Mormon multiple times. I remember exactly one verse. It's from 2 Nephi. Uh, God will save you by his grace after you've done all that you can do. I think maybe that word means something you don't understand. Okay, but I'll build off of that. Jews. I heard a Jew talking the other day about uh, an Orthodox Jew about the book of Leviticus and giving his perspective on what it meant. And I went, oh my goodness. Yeah, give me Leviticus. You give me the Pentateuch. If you're in the first century and you're talking about Samaritans, if they accept the Pentateuch as they did, but they reject the prophets, that's fine. You should be able to get to Christ from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the gospel. Take what you have in common, build upon that in that way, and that is how you find common ground. Do not claim commonalities with pagans that are not actually there. And in fact, even pagans, in a past age, you would have been able to at least appeal to absolute truth. That's gotten a little bit more dicey now, hasn't it? But find commonalities where you may and build upon those things. Now, in closing, let me simply leave you with an exhortation of my own. And that is to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus. The same Lord Jesus that the Apostle Paul preached of, delivered to you in the same way. Christ was the promise of the prophets. He was the progeny of David, who himself redeemed David, reaching back in time to rescue the souls of all the perishing in the Old Covenant and forward in time to, I pray, rescue your soul today. Christ died for sinners, of which you are one. And if you did not know that, you have now been told. You are in a desperate state before the living God. He is holy. You are not. Christ lived a perfect life that it may be ascribed to you because God only accepts perfection. He died a death sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. And as Paul said, he rose again on that third day so that you might rise from the dead with him to eternal life. Trust in that. Trust in that alone. 
your good works are filthy rags. They cannot save you, but there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you for these things, for this great message. And Lord, we pray your blessings as we continue to delve into this more deeply in the coming weeks. We thank you for the glory of your word. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.